0: Please take a seat and please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1 which I think was page 927 of the church Bibles and on the back of the service sheet you'll see an outline of where we'll be heading as we look at this first chapter together, Jonah chapter 1. Let me ask you as you're turning to Jonah If we were to play uh, word association uh, with Jonah, the first thing that comes into your mind when I mention the word Jonah, I am betting uh, that most Christians, uh, when it comes to the name Jonah, more often than not will think of the big fish that swallows a man, swallows the prophet Jonah in chapter 2. We won't get to that uh, car chase scene uh, in Jonah till next week. But that is the moment, isn't it, that is burnt into our memories perhaps From Sunday school, it's one of my earliest memories as a child uh, hearing again and again and again the story of Jonah and the whale uh, as it was uh, when I was taught it. It's uh, so much so that it it seems to have made its way onto many of the front covers of a children's Bible. You look at the children's Bibles that are around, especially uh, in the last 20, 30 years. More often than not, there is the whale front and centre uh, on the uh, front of the Bible. It's no wonder. It's a remarkable story that we begin together tonight and will be in uh, over these weeks of January. It's a strange story. Uh, Just 58 verses are in the book of Jonah but they punch well above their weight. Uh, It's designed to surprise you at every turn. It's full of action. It's full of uh, strange moments. It's funny, uh, sometimes ridiculous uh, but it is always compelling now, just 58 verses, as I said, uh, but they are amazing verses. And I think all too often Jonah has been consigned to the annals of Sunday school, where whenever we view it, we view it through the eyes of a five-year-old, forever entranced by a big fish that manages to swallow a man whole and miss altogether the big God uh, who is powerfully and wonderfully revealed in these verses. And that's what we're going to see over these weeks Uh, Your God spoke this story to change your life. And if we can see beyond the fish, he will do it again this January. And so I'm going to pray again, and I'm going to pray to that end, pray that God would change us uh, this January together. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this book. We thank you uh, that you spoke so powerfully in such a short story. Uh, We do pray now that whatever... um, Memories we come to Jonah with uh, that you would help us to see it afresh tonight and in the coming weeks. Uh, We pray this, that you may transform us to be the people you would have us be. Amen. Uh, As we begin to look at Jonah, and hopefully you've got it open by now, page 927, let me tell you about a man by the name of Eddie. Uh, Eddie Aikau uh, was his name. He's a Hawaiian or was a Hawaiian lifeguard and surfer, big wave surfer. Uh, famous for taking on the big waves, 20, 25 foot. He wouldn't go out into the surf for anything less than that. Uh, he was also famous for rescuing swimmers where no one else would go out and rescue them in the big seas. He would go out and so the phrase was coined, Eddie would go. Uh, whenever people saw a massive sea, the only person they knew who would go out in it was Eddie. Eddie would go. In 1978, uh, he joined a research trip uh, with a, on a canoe where they were going to sort of, plot the uh, traditional course the Polynesians used between Hawaii and Tahiti. And uh, along the way this canoe, which uh, was uh, probably never designed for the trip that it took, uh, capsized and uh, the crew uh, were in great trouble. And Eddie again volunteered. uh, For some reason he'd taken his surfboard along on the canoe uh, to paddle his surfboard some 18 kilometres to get help, but he was never found and in the years that followed, every year there is a surfing contest held in his memory, the Eddie Woodgo Go International. Uh, it was held just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, won by an Australian, I believe. And uh, let me say uh, tonight, as we look at Jonah, I think we have an Eddie Would Go moment uh, for us. And to help explain why, let me read the first three verses of Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Have a look at the first six words of the book. The word of the Lord came. It's easy to miss uh, the start of the book. You're just getting into a story and it takes you a while to sort of get into the, uh, the swing of it but these words are important. They make clear to us that, that this story is not some sideshow in the Bible, some quirky little book that's, that's there to entertain us. This is a story all about what happens when God speaks as is the whole Bible. And from the very first pages of the Bible we see what happens when our God speaks. He speaks and life and all that's in existence comes into being. Uh, Just a few pages on, in Genesis 12, he speaks big, global promises, promises to his servant Abraham that have reached us tonight. When God speaks, things happen. All throughout the Bible we see this. Uh, You read a book like Zechariah and you see how powerful his word is. Uh, The image there is of his word being like a scroll that flies into a house and blows it apart. And we see that his word is intimate. You, you read uh, the Gospel of John, the first chapter, and you see it is the word that has come to dwell with us. The whole Bible illustrates how God has spoken, how he keeps every word he speaks. He speaks and it is done. And so when you read these first words in Jonah, realise that we are right at the heart of what God is doing in our world. The word of the Lord came. But keep reading in verse 1 and you'll see this word is not a general word but a very specific one to a specific person in a specific place, Jonah of Israel. Uh, We only know a little bit of Jonah but if you look at 2 Kings chapter 14 uh, you'll see there a little bit of a description of him. He was a prophet uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, God's people, uh, back in the 8th century BC and in the context of the passage in 2 Kings 14 he had a pretty good job. His job was essentially to tell the northern kingdom of Israel that that God was going to be patient with them, that he was going to show grace yet again, that despite the wickedness of their king and the wickedness of the people, God was going to relent. He would bring peace to the kingdom, respite. And it was so. He had this great job of bringing good news. And his name gives that away. The, The name Jonah itself means dove, and all the way through the Bible, the idea of a dove is, is a peaceful, beautiful image. It was the dove that went out when, uh, when the flood ended and Noah sent the dove out and it came back with the olive branch. A dove is the word that God uses for his people, his affectionate term for his people in the Old Testament. That's Jonah's name. He is dove, son of Amittai. Amittai meaning truth. So there he is, dove, son of truth a warm start isn't it comfortable name and then the bomb is placed under the story arise and go to Nineveh the word of the Lord has indeed come to a dove son of truth but it's not an easy word it's a shocking word for one like Jonah one used to a comfortable job and it's a word that tells us a number of things about the God of the Bible Have a look at these opening verses and you will see that the God who has spoken to Jonah speaks not just to Israel, not just to the people Jonah is used to speaking to, but also to the nations of the world, even Nineveh. Now Nineveh at this time was a great and powerful and arrogant city, a godless city. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful force in the world at the time. It's the city of the king who had virtually destroyed Israel. It's sited on modern day Baghdad. Arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah is told. Not only does God speak to such nations, verse 2 tells us that he regards himself as the one Nineveh is answerable to. He is the judge. And so here in these first two verses of the story, the bomb is planted under Jonah's life. God has spoken. His powerful and active word is at work here. And it's a word not just for Israel, is it? It's a word for the whole world, for every city of the world, even the furthest from Israel, even Sheffield. His word is the word of the God who created Sheffield. He alone formed her seven hills. He alone formed her rivers and her steel and her people. He alone is sovereign over all of it. He alone has a right to shape and order and form Sheffield. For he alone can hold her people to account. Not only does he speak to Nineveh, not only does he speak to Sheffield, he expects a response. For he is the judge. And so, the God who speaks to Nineveh, who speaks to Sheffield, you see there, he sees the wickedness of the city. And he speaks against it. Now realize what's being said here. When you realize the sort of words our God speaks, when he speaks against the wickedness of a city, it's no small thing. He speaks, and the world comes into existence. And so, when he sees the wickedness has come up before him, it matters. And I think again, this challenges what how we view our city. God has already spoken against our city. He has already seen the wickedness of our city. Even now he sees it and speaks. Now I suspect Jonah in his role as a prophet to the northern kingdom was quite comfortable, quite happy doing what he did as Dove, son of truth, speaking of God's mercy, speaking to God's people of God's mercy. For him uh, over time I suspect God had become tame and comfortable. The words he was given were given were always warm and, and comfortable words, assuring words, peaceful words. But now this word comes to him and all of a sudden his view of God is shaken and his view of the world around him. And I reckon even in these just first few verses, we too can be like this when it comes to God's word come to us. We who have heard his word again and again and again. We who know the gospel of his son well. I suspect over time it is easy to tame his word come to us. The God we think we hear from in the Bible uh, becomes an unchallenging, tame, gentle, easy God who speaks comforting, warm, gentle words to us. His word to us is not so much a big wave that Eddie would go into, it's more like a warm bath. It's easy, isn't it, to be lulled into thinking that God only speaks those sort of words to us. So much so that we end up only listening for those sort of words. But Jonah shows us here that the word of God is not like a warm bath at all. It's more like diving into an ocean and having a big wave wash over you. And so as we begin to hear God's word in Jonah, don't just listen for words that will confirm where you're at or comfort you. He'll speak those sort of words, but not just those words. Listen for the word that will convict you. Listen for the word that will challenge you, that will call you on to more than this. If you're expecting a warm bath, let me say that you have opened the wrong book. Because the God who speaks this word is the God who rules over Nineveh, over Sheffield, over Fulwood tonight. He is the God who has seen the wickedness of our city and holds our city to account. And he says this, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so when God speaks to us, he will never do it just to suit our purposes. He will never do it just to serve our whims, whatever they may be. The God who speaks to us can't be put into a neat box. He can't be tamed by our view of him. He is Yahweh. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who speaks to the cities of our world, who judges the cities of our world. Let me ask you, is that the God you have in your mind tonight as you hear him speak? Our God is not safe. This is so brilliantly expressed by C.S. Lewis in the the Narnia books. He says, uh, of King Aslan, uh, he says, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let me ask you this tonight. When was the last time that God's word felt unsafe to you? When was the last time that you heard God speak and it shook you? When did that last happen? Because his word, if you're listening, should sound unsafe, it should sound risky. It's a word that that says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a word that says to us the life you live, the life you live for yourself is over, come follow me. It's a word that says love me more than your mum or your kids or your wife or your life, love me more than these It's a word that says through tears that many live in our city as enemies of the cross of Christ, that their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame and that is not okay. Your God speaks unsafe words. And so once again as we dive into the prophet Jonah, this is the God revealed to us. He is not safe or tame or comfortable. He is not like that and so his word won't be either. And the more you deal with him, the more he speaks to you, the, the less safe and comfortable things should feel. The more he will turn your world on its head and give you a new set of priorities, give you a mission worth joining, but it won't be a safe one. I reckon we need to guard ourselves in forward against safe religion, comfortable religion. I reckon Fullwood's a great place to live, isn't it? It's beautiful, especially at the moment. And forward, Christchurch forward is a great place to be. But let's not be safe. Our God is not safe. His word is not safe. We need to guard ourselves against, for instance, having the same conversations after every Sunday service with the same people. Or guard ourselves against having them in our small group, safe conversations, the sort of, don't mention the war type conversations. We need to let God's word shape our conversations and if we do, inevitably they will be risky ones, city changing conversations and that will be very good for us. But back to our story, let's see Jonah's response to his call to go. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and fled. Verse 3 should have the word so rather than but. The the writer of this story wants us to see the, the complete opposite reaction that Jonah has. He is told to arise and go. So Jonah arose and went as far away as he possibly could. Far away from God's presence as he could to the open sea anywhere but where a God would speak a word like this to him. Have you ever done that with God's word? He speaks to you and you run. Well, if you have, uh, when it comes to this word to go to our city, do you realise who he is? The God who speaks to us. Do you realise that his word to our city, our village, our families, our friends is this word? Do you know what God has to say to forward? Because if we do, if we know his word in verse 2 to our city, to our families, to our colleagues and we find it easy to walk around and live in this town of Sheffield, to to be with our families, then there is a big danger that we are just like Jonah. I reckon it's easier, as we'll see as we go on in this book, to to point and laugh at Jonah. He is a ridiculous figure. Why flee? He knows, as we'll see in a few verses, that God created the land and the sea and he flees to the sea. Why flee? But well may we ask ourselves the same question. Why do we run when God speaks, when he calls us to go for him? Well it's not until the very end of this book, Jonah chapter 4, that we are given the answer. And we'll wait until then to see the answer that God gives. But for now we may speculate as to why Jonah would run and why we might run. Perhaps it's fear. Is that why Jonah runs and he has much to fear, doesn't he? Uh, He's been told to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, this horrific empire. Well, might he run, but uh, we're told later in the book that's not why he runs at all. But perhaps it's the reason we may run, we may ignore God's call to go. We have things to fear, yes, when it comes to reaching out, going to our city for God. Well, not really. Our families, our friends, our colleagues don't really compare to the brutal power of the Assyrian Empire, do they? It's not like if we share the gospel with a friend they are going to put our head on a pole and parade us through the city as the Assyrians did. We have very little to fear when it comes to our city or our friends. That's not why we run, is it? I suspect uh, very often uh, when, we, when we think about evangelism, we, we pray for boldness, don't we? Uh, I want more boldness in my evangelism, but that's not really our problem. You don't have to be that bold in our context, do you? The consequences are not that big. So if it's not fear, what is it? Is, is it perhaps that we're not sure what to say? It wasn't Jonah's problem, was it? He was a prophet a prophet to his own people. But perhaps he thought, this is not my area of expertise. I'm the guy who speaks to God's people. You're going to have to find another prophet to do this job. That's not my area. And perhaps we might think like that. It's not my gifting. I get too muddled too easily when I, when I try to share the gospel. I'm better at encouraging Christians. That, that's my, my thing. Well, the wonder of the gospel of Jesus is it is beautifully simple. And he gives us the very power of his spirit to speak it. We have everything we need to know what to say. So, if it's not fear and it's not knowing what to say, perhaps it's not having opportunities. Well, it's not Jonah's problem, is it? He was told to arise and go, the opportunity's there. And us, well, it's the same, isn't it? As John Wesley said The world is my parish, we have plenty of opportunities in this village, in this city. It struck me as I was thinking about that this week uh, that it is often the opportunity we don't think that is, is there that someone is desperate we take. I thought about that after this last month that uh, I've been in Australia and uh, I've got to tell you, 30 days in Australia it was just perfect. I'm happy to tell you about it in great detail. I, I loved almost every minute of it. But there was a couple of moments which, which uh, bring me great sadness still as I think about them, and they are moments I spent with my brother. Uh, large parts of the time spent with him was great, just catching up, uh, seeing what he's been up to. but uh, once again, uh, I think I'd build it up in my head as my big opportunity to tell him the gospel. And I reckon when it comes to my brother and I, we have hit a brick wall. There is nothing more I, I can think of to say. No angle, no, no different argument that there's nothing. It's, it's just a wall the more I think about it, what I realise I need is I need backup. Uh, he's a doctor, he works in a Sydney hospital and I think what I need is someone who works in that hospital, a Christian brother or sister, who will talk to him. Someone who perhaps doesn't think there's any opportunities now for them but I am desperate for them to take it. Let me say the opportunity you don't think is there is the one someone is desperate you take uh, in your workplace in your social circles, have your eyes open. The truth is none of the typical reasons that we might have to ignore God's call to go to our city, whether it be fear or being unsure of what to say or not thinking there are opportunities are the reasons, are they? They're not Jonah's reasons and they're not ours. As we will see later in this book, there is something else that made Jonah run and the impulse is in us too. And the book's not going to tell us that to the very end because what God wants us to do as we read this story is to search our hearts. And as we do, what will scare us is not what we find in our hearts but what we fail to find there. But for now we have a man who hears God's word and runs. No explanation. Well, let's quickly skim through the rest Of the story of chapter 1. Jonah finds himself on the open sea in a boat with a group of sailors who know nothing of his God. And yet his God brings a huge storm to bear on the boat. Everything is falling apart literally, and Jonah himself now is under God's judgment. And on this ship are two very distinct human responses to the reality of that judgment. Firstly, you've got the sailors who, as judgment falls around them, as the storm grows, they, they are terrified, desperate. They pray to any and every god they can think of. They invent gods to pray to. They, they try anything to fix the problem. They, they're throwing things overboard, anything to deal with the problem they're facing. You see it there in verse 5. And as I looked at it, I thought, is this not a picture of how our world deals with the problems it faces? They'll try anything to fix it. And We've seen that in, in recent weeks with the huge problem of climate change as our world gathered in Copenhagen, leaders, uh, great wise heads getting together in Copenhagen, trying everything to fix the problem. And despite all the organisation, all the plans, we are no closer. And then you also have uh, the other side of the story in verse 5 Jonah's response to this storm. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. It's as if the wind and the waves of God's judgment have lulled him into a dove-like slumber. The boat is falling apart and he is snoozing. And is this not a picture of how all too often we can respond to the problems our world faces? Well, Take, for example, the problem of climate change. Now, I've got to tell you, I'm not a climate change sceptic. I'm further along the spectrum than that. I am certain it's not the world's great problem. There is a bigger problem, isn't there? The problem that the wickedness of our world has come before our God. But how callous not to respond to the warning signs that something like climate change is, that things are not okay with our world, that things aren't heading up and up. Warning signs that point to the big problem our world is facing, its problem with its God. The signs are all around for Jonah in this little boat, but he sleeps on. The signs are all around for our little planet. We must not fall asleep. And so as we look at these verses, everything I think in this picture is upside down. At least the sailors are scared. The captain finally asked Jonah, how can you sleep? Get up and pray for us. Still no prayer from Jonah's lips. Eventually they get to the bottom of the cause and they cast lots and it falls on Jonah and he's forced to spill the beans. And you see it there in verse 9. I am a Hebrew, God's chosen people. I'm one of them. I'm his special people. I worship the Lord. That's what I do. I worship the God who created everything, the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea. It's a great statement, isn't it? It's like a creed. It's like he stands up in the boat as if he's standing in church and he states facts about his God. It's brilliant. But from Jonah's lips, it's all a bit hollow, don't you think? His actions say that he does not worship the Lord. And he's now embarking on the futile exercise of escaping a God who made the sea. But the impact of his statement is not lost on the sailors. They are afraid. What have you done? How can we fix this? And you see Jonah's solution in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know this is my fault. Now don't misread Jonah's response here. This isn't self-sacrifice. This isn't some wonderful action on Jonah's behalf to save the sailors at all. There's no prayer for mercy here, no repentance. This isn't even self-sacrifice. He would rather be thrown in the sea They come under God's word. Again, the sailors try to save the boat in vain, but eventually they throw him over. And as they do, the sailors pray to Jonah's God. As I said, everything is upside down in this picture. And as he hits the water, it does grow calm instantly. And now, perhaps more than ever, the sailors are truly afraid. Jonah's God is the God of the land and the sea. And so they do again what Jonah should be doing. They fear the Lord, they repent. They offer sacrifices, they ask for forgiveness from this God and they make vows to trust him. It's a wonderful picture of rescue. We'll see more of it next week. But just as we close, let me ask you, what do you make of what we've seen in Jonah thus far. As the word of the Lord comes, a, a word that has come to us more fully and more completely than it ever did to Jonah. A word that tells us that God has, who made the whole earth is judge of that earth. Even of Sheffield, even of Ford, of all the people around us, even us. A word that is not insignificant. What do you make of this book thus far? A prophet who hears that word and runs from it who falls asleep as judgment falls around him. Well, as we close, let me ask you this. As we see more and more in these coming weeks of God's character, and that's what we'll see in Jonah, what aspect of his character do you think is going to disturb you the most? Is it going to be his character that you see that he is sovereign and powerful to create everything you experience and all that you are? Is that going to disturb you? Or perhaps it will be his sovereign right to judge all that you experience and all that you are? Or could it be his sovereign grace in all that you experience and all that you are? Which of those will disturb you to think? Which of those will catch you off guard, which will demand the most of you? Now, I'm no good at surprises, so let me give the game away already. This book is all about what happens when God's grace is unfurled in our world. And it will be his grace that you will find most disturbing, most unsafe, that will demand the most of you. The breathtaking theme all the way through this book is the ever-present, ever-available, ever-surprising, compassionate grace of Yahweh, your God. While it is called the story of Jonah, it is in fact the story of the great goodness of our God. All the way through this book, this is what we're going to see. Yahweh's compassionate heart placed alongside Jonah's mean spirit. And that's going to disturb us. And then we're going to see Yahweh's grace placed alongside, well, alongside nothing because nothing can compare to it. It is utterly beyond us. The book of Jonah is going to shout at us, look at God's world. See it through his heart. Let that heart revealed to you in this little book overwhelm your own hard heart. Jonah is a breathtaking revelation of God's grace. That's what it is. It's designed to take you off guard, your heart off guard. And it's going to be very, very good. But it will not be safe. We're reading this book together to fill our hearts with the great goodness of our God, his grace. We're reading it to stir our hearts for the city that we live in a city that he made and cares for with more than 500,000 people who do not know their left hand from their right when it comes to God. And we're reading it to prepare our hearts to arise and go to our city for our God because of his grace. Let's pray.